Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Jen Liao of Mila, authentic soup dumplings, Chinese noodles, and chef-crafted sauces. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Jen Liao of Mila. Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up and what would you say your childhood was like? Uh, so I grew up in a lot of different places. I was born in Dallas, Texas, and then moved to California, Rhode Island, mm. um, Boston, Massachusetts, then Seattle, Washington, then a little bit outside of Seattle to Bellevue, uh, which is where our first restaurant is. Mm. Um, and then after that, went to college in Philadelphia, lived in New York, SF, and now I'm back to wow. Seattle. Oh my goodness. What was life like, um, say, like in your early years of uh, grade school? What were, what were your parents doing at that time? What were some of your aspirations, um, athletics, entrepreneurship? What, what was that like? Um, definitely in grade school, I wouldn't say there were any aspirations on entrepreneurship yeah. um, at that point yet. So my parents, uh, my dad was um, a scientist and doctor, and then my mom was a scientist, so kind hmm. of life sciences and healthcare was everything that I knew at that point. Um, I actually had wanted to be a kindergarten teacher in elementary school. Mm. And that I would say in high school, I was really interested in going into psychology, psychiatry. Um, so a little bit of a different path, but converging on like the life sciences, healthcare area yeah. of things. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of hobbies, passions, all of that, athletics, I did um, figure skating and I did ballet and mm. Chinese dance at that time. So that was mostly what I did outside of school. Yeah, incredible. So I saw, and you mentioned as well, you went to the University of uh, Pennsylvania. What did you end up studying there and what, what were your aspirations going into there as well? Did any of those carry over? Yeah, so I studied, it. the major was called Biological Basis of Behavior, so now mm. it's neuro, Neurobiology, Neuroscience, mm -hmm. um, and then I did a minor in healthcare management while I was there, so I definitely was on pre-med track at that time. Um, I think even in college, I wasn't exactly sure if that's the path that I wanted to go down. Mm. Um, I think I was very interested in, as I mentioned, the psychology, psychiatry aspect of it. I think um, I had encountered some friends who were going through some things in high school, and that was you know, part of what, what made it interesting, but I also wasn't sure how cut out I was for it because it's very tough, I think, to mm. see some of these things happening personally. Mm. So then in college, I was just exploring if this was the right career path for me or not. Um, I think I was very interested in the healthcare aspect, but um, during the summers, I had actually done a few different internships or like summer programs more internationally in the healthcare space. Mm. And I found myself pretty interested in systems. Mm. So like, why did, you know, that region or town or whatever it was, how did it, you know, set things up the way it was set up? How did they kind of decide who was the doctor of the village, for example? And um, 
why did they um, believe certain things? Like all of those were very interesting to me, which I think are tangential to the actual treatment or care itself. Yeah. And so I think that began my exploration of whether healthcare and being a doctor was the exact path or maybe there were other roles outside of healthcare, but still for that topic that I might be interested in. Mm, amazing. If you can kind of explain what that journey looked like right after college, after graduation. So what did you end up getting into um, and kind of how long was that span as well? Yeah, so I worked in a biology lab and I worked on ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. And it was really working with a lot of mice and um, very, you know, definitely bench work, um, doing dissections and whatnot. Um, yeah. So that was really the bulk of my actual work. And then during that time, I was really seeing if, you know, the healthcare path is what I wanted to go down for being a doctor. And I think during that time, I did find that I liked as well other aspects of, uh, I think, being in the lab outside of the actual science or the health care itself. Yeah. And I really like, you know, like experimental setup. How do I optimize experiments? I had actually created a couple of different experimental um, models that I taught a few other people how to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And I found that very enjoyable was just to like figure out a problem and problem solve and then optimize that and be able to kind of scale it and keep doing it for some end result. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very like soft skill type yeah. of thing that I found myself really enjoying. And maybe that goes back to systems a little bit. But yeah. um, I think that was what I was looking at. And then obviously studying for my MCAT. And I think I found that it was very hard for me to sit down and study for my MCAT. I think yeah. mostly because I wasn't exactly sure if this was the path that I wanted to go down or not. Mm. Um, and so after those first few years, um, I started dating my now husband and co-founder Caleb, mm -hmm. and he lived in San Francisco and I lived in New York. So I actually started to explore going to San Francisco after we started to date. And San Francisco, obviously, it's startup tech world. Yeah. And I never thought about that before. And um, since I was considering San Francisco, I started to explore it. And I did find myself really liking the idea of joining a startup and just doing a lot of different things to figure out what exactly I vocationally was potentially good at and enjoyed. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened. I moved there, didn't have wow. a job. Um, and then I actually got a free um, fellowship as well after I worked at a, a different startup that I wasn't paid for. So <laughs> there was about a one year span where I wasn't paid anything. Oh my and, gosh. Um, coming out of a lab salary, which I don't know if you know how much lab people are paid, but it was like a $32,000 per year salary. So I did not have any savings. And then I was also not paid for a year. So it was like, definitely, wow. you know, different lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but I think coming out of that for that free um, fellowship that I did, it was a very interesting company. It's called Rock Health. And at the time, they were a nonprofit plus healthcare VC fund. Mm -hmm. um, so that was 
very interesting because then I got to do a lot of different aspects. So I was doing business development for Rock Health as an entity and mm -hmm. helping other startups that were in the portfolio of Rock Health do business development. And then yeah. I was also looking on the VC side of things in order to basically um, look at the pipeline and then match companies with some of the corporate uh, sponsors that were there and basically help them broker some kind of partnership or collaboration. Gotcha. So there were lots of different aspects and then events and research publications. So yeah. I did get to do a lot of different things and it wow. was still healthcare. So that was quite enjoyable. Incredible. I'm curious at this time also, um, what was Caleb doing um, in San Francisco and kind of how did you guys um, unite at this time and how did, don't get into the founding story yet, but what was he doing at that time that kind of correlated? If um, so I moved to San Francisco and then three months later he moved to New York. Uh, so okay. we did not live in the wow. same place. Yes. So we swapped places and we actually ended up doing long distance for four years. Uh, mm. so I moved to San Francisco. I lived in his apartment with his roommate <laughs> while he moved to New York after I moved there. And then we did long distance and he was wow. in finance at that time. So when I okay. met him, he was doing private equity and then he moved to New York and was doing hedge fund work. So wow. very different from anything that we're related to now. <laughs> Incredible. Now kind of getting into food and culinary that like that shift from a healthcare background, startup background. How does this come about? Um, if you can kind of explain that. Yeah, so after Rock Health, I went to go work for one of the portfolio companies. They're uh, a health tech startup. Um, and while I was working there, I continued business development as a role. Mm. And I think I enjoyed that, but I also wanted to understand a little bit more about myself because that role and the scope of that role is still quite narrow in you know what the subject materials and then how yeah. I manage people, how I myself function. And so I think um, uh, during that time, we actually have a third co-founder, his name is Norman. He had moved back to Seattle after some time in California and opened a poke restaurant. And mm. for that restaurant, he had asked if I wanted to open it together with him. Um, but I'm allergic to fish, so I said no to the opportunity. And then after the first store went well, he came back and said, do you want to open a second store? I'm like, no, I am still allergic to fish, yeah. but how about you? Um, how about you start a restaurant that has this amazing food that my then boyfriend, Caleb, really loves, but we can't have it anywhere. And then we'll come eat at your restaurant all the time. So that was how it started. Wow. And then every single week, Norman would call me excited about the idea and brainstorming, like, how should I, aka we, do it? Um, yeah. So it be, it started as like a Norman was doing this. And then, you know, after a month or two, it was very clear that we were all doing it together. Wow. And so then it was just brainstorming, okay, what kind of food do we really love to eat, but isn't available here? And, you know, how can we make it a restaurant or like a night market stall type of concept that we yeah. would enjoy spending time with and eating the food that we really miss growing up with. So that's how it had started. Incredible. And this, in short, this was, was this XCJ uh, as well? Yes. Which so it started this as, was, okay. Yep. It started as XCJ and then we were all full time on other stuff at that same time. Got it. So this is around that 2018 period. I'm curious. Um, so this spans and then all of a sudden COVID hits. Um, this is when you guys start navigating direct to consumer. Um, 
what kind of led you guys to take that route and what kind of experience was that especially i know the, the restaurant industry especially was hit hard yeah so um basically 2018 um caleb when we opened the restaurant caleb was still in new york I was in San Francisco, Norman was in Seattle, and we were essentially just rotating, um, helping out in the restaurant um, to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID hit, it was actually right after Caleb and I got married. So we got married, came back to SF, everything was totally shut down. And I think at that point, we were kind of evaluating what we wanted to do with mm -hmm. our careers. I was still at that health tech company, um, and Caleb was just kind of thinking about if he wanted to stay in finance or not. So it was actually very good timing yeah. at that moment of what was happening. So it shut down. We had some free time on our hands since we were in lockdown mode. Yeah. And we really wanted to make sure that we could help our employees if they still wanted to keep working instead of being furloughed, for example. Mm -hmm. And we had this main hero item that's called a Sinja Bao. It's a pan fried soup bao. Mm -hmm. And then our chef at the time, and he's still with the company as our culinary lead. And he started to experiment with soup dumplings. And we always knew that like dumplings are frozen so like why couldn't soup dumplings be frozen there are some some soup dumplings in the asian grocery store so there must be a way to like make this in a good format that we really enjoy as well so yeah. we started to play around with that in the three weeks that the restaurant was shut down um the restaurant then we uh just tested this out we sent out google forms with venmo links and we just said like hey if you are interested in this can you make a purchase we had made like two bags just in case somebody was interested in purchasing it. Yeah. And we had um, a lot of requests just from that first send out. And I think a lot of it is just lucky timing where it is COVID, people are at home, they are looking for good food and an experience. Yeah. And so we had enough requests for us to basically um, bring back a few people in the restaurant to start making those bags for at least a week. Mm. And then it just kept building where we brought them back, we sent out another form and there were requests kept coming in and then they would tell their friends and refer other folks a little bit further away and mm. then we would make more and it just very organically grew that way for a few months yeah. and that's when we had that aha moment of like okay you know like we should test this out online to see if ads work because right now it's super cheap and we've heard that online advertising like everyone's pulling out no one's spending anything yeah so we started to advertise. It was literally like a stock video from stock images that Caleb had pulled together himself with like really bad music. And yes. it worked for wow. a very long time. <laughs> That's incredible. So once you guys started rolling out those ads, then what kind of, um, especially with low um, cost at that point, entry cost, what, what did that look like that conversion? You said it, you picked up momentum at the early stage. So I'm curious, um, how did you guys handle uh, logistically with a small team? Yeah, so at first we were only advertising in Washington. So we had, um, as I mentioned, like when we were at Google Form stage, we were mm -hmm. literally Ziploc bag, brown paper bag. Um, we used MapQuest. I don't know why we used MapQuest and not Google Maps, but for some reason that's what happened at the very beginning. And we had ourselves and um, task rabbits basically driving around and dropping them off. And then, as I mentioned, like people started referring a little bit further away. Then we started to look at local last mile delivery services. So then we contracted with them to basically pick up once a day and then they would take it to a central 
hub and dispatch it for the day after to mm. deliver it. So yep. that's when we started to look at insulated packaging with dry ice and then figuring out like logistically how we would figure some of that out. Mm. And then um, when we started doing the ads, we just looked at how much did it cost. And at that time, it was a $7 acquisition cost, mm. which is very, very low yeah. for any kind of acquisition cost, which is why it was working for us at that time. Mm -hmm. And so then we could be very flexible with like pricing, location, how much we packed into it and just like try to get it right because mm -hmm. we could at least be either break even or first order profitable is how we thought about it. And yeah. so then we just slowly expanded out further and further um, as we got more requests to go further and further and then figuring out how can we look at different warehouses and 3PLs, for their, which are third-party logistic partners and warehouses yep. to help us do this and shipping yeah. networks like UPS and FedEx and how can we negotiate that to keep things about at parity for cost yeah. um, because it felt very important to us to be able to have an accessible item um, even though the volume is high for how much you have to purchase in one go the cost per item still feels very reasonable to us yeah. and so then um, by November of 2020 we were technically national coverage although some of it was airshipped yeah amazing so from what I understand you guys have remained 100% vertically integrated and that's incredible and how do you guys, especially when you plan on scaling, have you looked into co-packers and what, what makes you guys stay kind of producing yourself? Yeah, so we have looked at co-packers. Um, actually, the moment we started scaling, we did look at co-packers. Yeah. Um, and what happened was we were so small at the time that no one cared about us. Um, mm. Of course, like that's what happens to startups. Yeah. And so they would never change their protocol to fit our recipe and what our requirements were. Mm. And so when that happened, um, we also had started to scale up on our own and we looked at their cost versus our cost. Our costs were already at parity without scale yeah. and they weren't willing to change their protocols to match our requirements. So we essentially were like, okay, this is just going to be tough operationally to keep expanding. But mm. since it is the same cost, we might as well keep trying to figure it out. And so that decision was made for ourselves because we didn't want to compromise on the quality of our product. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm curious on the marketing side, especially a food product, a lot of it is kind of driven by taste. I know a lot of people who do road shows, trade shows. How are you convincing consumers? What are the main marketing strategies that you found to work through the years? Yeah, um, I think because it had started during this time where um, people were seeking these experiences, I think there was a lot of organic word of mouth to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then I think because acquisition costs were also fairly affordable at that time, I think we were able to reach a lot of different people. So it actually, um, I think we built a really good base of reviews to begin with. So then we had, you know, 500 reviews within a few months. And I think 500 is probably past the threshold of like, okay, I might get scammed, but this is like exactly. interesting enough that I'm willing to take a, take a bet on it. Yeah. And so I think that just kept building on itself where you saw the real customer reviews. We let people take pictures and put them on the website and it would go through. We started doing Instagram so you could see what the product looked like to educate the consumer as well. And so it really was like, um, you have advertising, but then you have things to back it up, like mm. reviews, or you could go to our social media and see really what is going on to educate the consumer and basically mm. like convince you to take that um, leap. For and sure. then now I think there's enough 
out there that um, it's a flywheel type of situation. Yep, definitely. So to, yeah, taking some of that feedback, what would you say is the main demographic, if you can depict that? Um, it is pretty broad. So what we've seen is it actually matches up quite closely to the U.S. Census in mm. terms of hotspots around the U.S. So mm. we do have, I think, outsized audience in Washington since it is our home territory. Um, outside of that, it pretty much matches what the population density looks like across the U.S., which is yeah. pretty fascinating. Um, but there isn't really necessarily like a racial ethnic um, concentration. Mm -hmm. And I think between um, male female splits, it's also fairly uh, even I think there is a skew towards female, which is typical for online e commerce businesses, yeah. but actually less so than most businesses that for we've sure. seen so far. For sure. So for the listeners out there to kind of if you can paint that picture. So say they go to the website, they make their first purchase. What does that experience look like? So if they bought uh, one of your products and it gets to their door, the unpackaging process, cooking, what does that look like in comparison to maybe a competitor? Yeah, um, there aren't a lot of competitors out there. So yeah. um, I would say it's not a direct competitor that maybe people are evaluating us based off of. It's not like an e-commerce frozen soup dumpling brand that ships directly to your door, which is yeah. what we do. And it's more like, how does it compare to a restaurant? How does, sure. how does it compare to a restaurant takeout? How does it compare to other grocery store products? So other grocery store products, the predominant one out there is like a microwave soup dumpling. Mm. And um, it's pretty good. I think it's pretty delicious. It's affordable. It's really easy. I think it's awesome if people know what soup dumplings are and this is a good entry point for that. Mm -hmm. um, I would say we focus a little bit more on um, uh, genuine product and high quality product where the dough is yeah. a little bit thinner and the filling is a little bit more and the soup is a little bit more. So, I mean, those are maybe minor things if you don't care about it, but yeah. if you care about like the soup dumpling quality, it is a noticeable difference. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that is the main thing that people are comparing against. And then they're comparing against like, oh, I've had soup dumplings in my favorite Chinese restaurant in the city that I visited. Yeah. How does this stack up to it? I think it's fairly close. I would still say like your favorite restaurant with a fresh soup dumpling that gets served at your table might still beat it, mm. but it's pretty close. It's yeah. not too far off. And especially if you're doing takeout, this is better than takeout because the soup will congeal inside the soup dumpling. Mm. Um, and then I think Jin Tai Fung, obviously that's like, the standard of soup dumplings and they've like made soup dumplings a thing yeah. i think their soup dumpling is fantastic and i think like they've done the work to really popularize some of like this high-end dim sum amazing so yeah so building on these last couple of years you guys have focused heavy direct consumer e-commerce but from what i understand you also rolled out in retail like uh, costco for example so what led to that decision especially finding some such success on your e-commerce store in the beginning um led to that yeah, so I mean, I think most food is sold in retail. Yeah. So uh, that's just the natural path of consumers. Sure. So I think for uh, the e-commerce side of things, there's actually only 4% penetration of people buying food online, um, mm -hmm. not counting like Uber Eats, DoorDash, but like actual frozen food shipped to them, yeah. which is pretty, or not even frozen food, any food really shipped to them. So yeah. that's pretty low in terms of purchase. Yeah. And so it's a much larger market if you go into retail. And I think for us, because of the dry ice and frozen shipping, we do have to keep 
are um, minimum shipping pretty high. And so if you're ordering, you know, two bags of soup dumplings, which is 100 soup dumplings at one time, that is going to narrow down the audience that you can really apply to and how much it costs overall. Um, and so I think going into retail that broadens who can try our product. So sure. it's a lower price point at an absolute value, but it is the same, you know, per dumpling, per soup dumpling price. So mm -hmm. you can try it. Um, you, it's a lot more available all across if we roll into more retail. And I think that's a great entry point for people. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I'm curious, have you guys thought about also maybe going into furthering restaurants? I know you started as a restaurant, but have you thought about partnerships in restaurants or what that might look like? Yeah, we have thought about it as well. I think we typically approach it from an omni-channel just uh, um, mm -hmm. approach, generally speaking. So I think we have direct-to-consumer, we have retail. Retail is going to be a subset of direct-to-consumer products. It, yeah. They're never going to take like your entire portfolio. I don't think, you know, the average consumer across the U.S. really wants every single Chinese food, nor do they really know what that is. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have an opportunity to really serve our core audience on, on D2C. And then for restaurant, it serves as a totally different entry point and experience where there's a lot of foods that can't be frozen and shipped that just won't do well and it won't be a good experience we can serve in our restaurant yep. or like that's another trial point if you're not sure yep so we talked heavy on kind of the product expansion and growth i'm going to talk on what the team has looked like through these past couple of years of growing as well um so started with just you um the two co-founders as well what did that team growth look like through these past few years since covid um growing with the brand yeah um we essentially just had um, I'll say the co-founders and founding team members up yep. until January of 2022. So yeah. that was essentially five people. Wow. And then we had production staff, um, but it was a very lean team during that time. And then we raised our first round and we knew we wanted to use that to expand the team, expand our product portfolio, expand the DTC operational piece of it. We had moved into our own manufacturing facility to expand um, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And so then we grew to about 25, 30 people by the end of 2022 pretty wow. quickly. Um, and then now we have about 35 to 40 full-time corporate employees and wow. about 90 to 100, including production customer service. That's incredible. So on the side of handling production in-house and also logistics in-house, uh, what percentage would you say is on that production side in comparison to um, your founding team, marketing, et cetera? Um, so production is about 60% of the company. Oh, 60, yeah. Yeah, and then the rest uh, would make up the, um, it's pretty even between the departments. So yeah. every department, let's say, has about three people. Got it. Incredible. Well, I'd like to conclude um, each episode with this. If you can share one piece of advice with an aspired entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? Uh, I would say um, persistence and consistency is the most important where um, you can get started very quickly. It doesn't need to be perfect. And then it's just about kind of iterating and building and improving every step of the way. There's not like one huge unlock or step function change most mm -hmm. of the time. And then I think on the leadership front, it is like not you don't need to know everything. I think you can hire and um, find uh, peers and team members that 
are better than you at a lot of different things. And that's what's the most important is to like build a holistic team. Mm, for sure. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Mila at eatmila.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.